everybody. Welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show. It's a very special show on the overlooked movies of the 1990s. And uh, I'm joined for this very special episode by a man uh, who it is difficult to overlook, JB. And I'm so excited because it's the early 90s and my son was just born <laughs> and I feel 30 years younger and 30 years lighter. Everything's doing great. Bill Clinton is in the White House. We're at war, right? Well, <laughs> probably. If you if you look at the presidencies I've lived through, let's just leave it at that. Mm. Um, one mm. thing I know in preparing for the show, I'm looking at this list that I keep. Yes. And it was such a wonderful nostalgic trip because uh caveat here, the list is not perfect during some years because it's based on the fact that when I got a ticket with the actual movie printed on it, which Cineplex Odious and Plit did pretty early on, I would throw it in a huge brandy sniffner, which just sat there for decades. And then when I decided to complete the list i went back and i and i oh my god so a not every theater had the computer printed tickets in the early 90s for instance the music box had carnival had cardboard carnival tickets a long time for way too long and that's a shame but but here's my point it was a wonderful nostalgic trip because i'm seeing all these movies and i remember i actually wrote down every movie in 85 86 so that's complete and then I get to 1989, and I think I saw 50 or 60 movies in a theater, and then 1990, none. <laughs> because Jake was born. Right. And we stopped going out. Yeah. I went to a Paul Simon concert okay. that year. All right. That's in the thing. <laughs> and then 1991, there's four. Wow. On the list. Okay. And then gradually, right. more I more get back up to speed. You get babysitters. But isn't that the case? Yeah, for sure. Um, so that part of this was fun. Uh, at the day that we are recording this, which is the day before the podcast comes out, some news broke today that I wanted to get your opinion on about uh, the Justice Department possibly undoing the Paramount. Uh, what do they call it? The Paramount. Uh, the consent decree, the um, the antitrust. Yeah, legislation. basically that we could go so theaters could possibly be owned by. Studios, once again. Or by... Disney. <laughs> well, Disney... Are, I wonder how they're allowed to own, own the El Capitan, because it's just one. Disney Probably. still owns that. Yeah. What if Netflix bought theaters? Yeah, that could or happen. Or Amazon right? that bought could theaters. Happen. It seems to me Amazon can't... There aren't enough things for them to spend their yeah, money on. That could happen. Um, I, I know that I should be anti-monopoly, and I know I should be antitrust, but... I know from which I speak, because one of the movies I wanted to talk about briefly during What Have You Seen Lately is a new documentary called Going Attractions, The American Movie Palace. Oh. They showed it at the Music Box about a week ago, and the filmmaker, April Wright, was in attendance, and a whole bunch of people who are in the theater preservation were there. In fact, some of the people on the screen were in the theater because some of it was filmed at the Music Box. Got it. And Going Attractions charts that as part of the story because of course between the depression and world war ii and the advent of television it was the supreme court's ruling that really was the death knell for that 
off the top of my head, I think it's a great idea to overturn it only because I think we've talked about this before on the podcast. I see the movie going experience on a downward spiral. Sure. And I thought originally that it was just based on the crazy times I go to the movies, but something's off. Something's wrong. Not as many people are going to as many movies as they used to. And maybe this would be a shot in the arm. Do you think this would be the final death knell of independent film? Hmm. Well, because AMC is no longer then going to book. If AMC is bought out by Disney, they're not going to have this AMC artisanal thing that they're trying to <laughs> float. Or, I'm uh, sorry, AMC artisan, right. which I actually like because it gets movies that we might not otherwise get. But niche just product. Call out it of the something suburb. else, you monsters. But because whenever I see it as on the header, on the banner, on the poster, I think of cheese yeah, for some reason. It's small, small batch small filmmaking. Batch. I would like to think, and this came up during the question and answer session at the end of the screening at the music box, that there are theaters throughout the country that are making it and making a pro- making a profit by doing various things. Because that was actually one of the questions that someone asked what does a theater have to do these days to stay in business and the filmmaker the documentarian had some ideas behind this i see the music box flourishing especially in the last couple years because they've slowly turned their focus away from you know what uh, adam risky talks about sometimes that if you went to the music box regularly at a certain point for about three years, you'd get a hell of an education in American film. It seems to me they've turned their attention more towards events. Right. Where it's special. Right. It's one night only. It's in 70 millimeter. The filmmakers are here. And I don't want to stereotype anyone, but it seems that there's a certain younger movie growing, movie growing, movie going demographic that likes I'm going to this thing that's sure, unique sure. and not the normal thing because more and more and more I see people tweeting, I'm at the music box. Okay. And they take a picture of the marquee or they take a picture of the lobby and that's special because mm-hmm. I, I went to this special place that we all agree on. So even if they overturn the Monopoly thing, even if we have Amazon theaters and Netflix theaters, I say at least we'll still have theaters, and I'd like to think much like bookstores and to a lesser extent record stores, Mm -hmm. that there would be independent theaters that would manage to stay in business. All right. You and I are supporting these things. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I would hope that our listeners are supporting these things unless you all want to feel guilty. (laughs) Um, so besides, uh, going attractions, what else have you seen anything lately? I really recommend going attractions. It's is by, it available to view anywhere right now or is it? It's playing festivals okay. and old movie palaces now. Got it. Okay. Um, she talked about, a, a streaming release and a disc release early next year. Okay. It's the same woman who made going attractions, the story of the American drive-in. Which I never saw. Okay. I, thought there's more than one documentary out there about okay. drive-ins okay this is the good one got it um and that was very informative i went to see parasite yes 
because, good Lord, did that have <laughs> buzz around it. Yes, it did. But if you would like to hear what an idiot I am, because that's always entertaining, I was trying to find out as little as I could. Yeah. Fan of the filmmaker, I'm going to go into this blind. That's the way to see it. But in doing that, I thought it was a horror movie. <laughs> okay. I really did. It's been talked about kind of in genre circles, so I think it's... I think that's an easy mistake, and it's called Parasite. I mean, I think it's an easy mistake to make. Right. And you might argue that it's an economic horror film. Yeah, and I think there are moments that lean into that a little bit. And you saw the film. I did. And it really shows you that American films do not like talking about class and poverty unless it's deep background that is a subject that is not dealt with seriously because Parasite has a lot to say. And not all of it is what you'd expect it to be. Right. I thought there was some, um, some oh, God, what's the word? Some finesse to the argument. It wasn't sort of straightforward. Sure. Um, beautifully written. Yeah. Uh, when you get to the middle, you're like, where is this going to go? Um, I thought it was also beautifully acted mm-hmm. um, by everyone concerned. It's mm-hmm. really one of the films this year you need to see. Yes, absolutely. I heard a criticism on another podcast that I won't single out on here, and they got into a conversation about the last five minutes. And one of the people on the podcast had a problem with the last five minutes that to me was so asinine. I couldn't. I, I can't understand how anybody watches movies that way, that it wasn't. That there was something not realistic about it. Okay. We'll but, talk about it after we record. Right. But, I mean, I, I was like, if how do you enjoy been, this whole movie? And then you, that's your sticking point. But I think I know what you're talking about. Yes. Because I've seen the last five minutes. Correct. If you've been paying attention, it's very clear what the filmmaker is actually doing in the yes. last five minutes. Okay. I'll leave it at that. Okay. And then finally, I took the drive. Yeah, you did. To Highland Park. Yeah, you did. And Old I, school, non-stadium seating. I saw it. Um, and there's no highway. It's it's yeah. like, oh, you're going to be on Lake Cook for quite a while. Um, you're going to be the youngest person in this theater. I think I haven't been to that theater in so long. I think since the last time I went there, they've completely redone it. Really? I don't remember it looking like that okay or being laid out that way the last time i was there was rachel getting married in i think 2007 and it looked exactly like okay that. maybe they just redid the lobby but um i'm so glad they showed it because everyone who's telling you the irishman is different on a big screen than it's going to be on tv is right although i will say if you're waiting to watch it on netflix you can choose your own intermission yes American films have brainwashed us into the two-hour, two-hour and 15-minute thing so much. And it doesn't help that uh, as much as I love trailers, right, uh, the fine people minutes. at the theater, I think it was more than that. Okay, I think from door to door, meaning entering the theater and leaving the theater, my experience was four hours. Sure. I walked in at 10.30 and I walked out at 2.30. In any case, um, it's an amazing, magnificent film. Yes, it is. It's an epic film. It's as if Goodfellas and Casino 
we're given room to breathe that this is what Goodfellas and Casino might have been if there wasn't this sort of unspoken length requirement on American films. Um, the de-aging thing that's getting so much press doesn't really call attention to itself, no. and I thought it was incredibly well done. There was one shot of the very first de-aged shot we see of De Niro. I thought, and maybe it was just me, I, I became very aware of it in that moment, and I was like, oh, he looks like he's from the Polar Express. And I think that was just me projecting, because I think outside of that shot, I didn't even notice it. And I think I know the shot that you're talking about, and I thought for me it was the first shot, because... It's an uninterrupted close-up of De Niro driving the truck. That's the shot, yeah. And it goes on for so long right. that you're allowed to stare yes. at it, right. and you begin to think, They're doing well, something there. no, right. that's not right. what De Niro looks like anymore. But I think it's so well done that there's a lot more of it in the theater than you're even aware of during the movie. Um, like when we discovered that almost every sky... In the movie Contact, right, 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 isn't the sky that day because the right. Meccas didn't like it? I think there's a lot of that going on. Last night, Scorsese was on Jimmy Kimmel, yes, and was talking a little bit about how it was achieved. And apparently, the actors had to wear the little balls oh, no on kidding. their face for registration, wow. and they had a specific employee that they hired to be a posture expert to remind the actors of how old they're supposed to be so that they move accordingly. Because wow. there's a scene in the film where um, Hoffa is watching television and he's getting very agitated. And Pacino is acting it up and he gets out of his chair and he walks away and Scorsese thinks it's a perfect take and he asks the people around him and the posture expert says, you're going to have to do that again. He's 49. <laughs> and in reality, Pacino's 78. Oh, my gosh. And so um, Scorsese <laughs> nicely asks him to do it again, and can you get up out of the chair a little faster? And they do it again, and Pacino's joke was, 62. <laughs> I can give you 62. Um, which was great. Don't let the fact that American films have brainwashed you into feeling antsy at the two-and-a-half-hour mark because I actually think the last hour is what really gives the film oh, for sure. some resonance. Yeah. Um, it reminded me of that wonderful incident that I've talked about so many times where I showed a film at a district thing and someone got their underwear in a bunch and shut the film off because they thought it was inappropriate. And the film was Quadrophenia, and the effect was that you got to see all these teenagers having all this illegal fun, and then you didn't get to see the consequences <laughs> at the end of the film. The last hour of The Irishman is what are the right. consequences right. of these actions? What right. are the wages of sin? Right. And um, it's very moving because I think Scorsese's gift, and he has hundreds of them, is that it's not... Um, it's not simplistic and we still have an amount of empathy for these characters mm -hmm. even though they've done horrendous things mm -hmm. because I think Scorsese knows that the minute you can write someone off as, well, he's not human. 
well then there there's no road back right. you you right. have to right. you have to recognize you have to at least recognize their worth as a human being um amazing period detail um it's like a reunion of some crazy uh Scorsese stock company. Yeah. I wondered why Leota wasn't in it, at least in a cameo. Um, the woman would it have been distracting? Well, I don't know because I didn't think Harvey Keitel was distracting. I thought it was funny that Rickles is in the film, even though Don Rickles passed it's away. A pretty good Rickles impression, though. Um, an amazing cameo by Miami Steve Van Zandt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the woman. Who plays Ray Liotta's drug courier in oh, yeah. in Goodfellas? The girl with I the need, hat. I need my hat. I don't travel without my hat. Shows up as Jimmy Hoffa's <laughs> wife. It's so great. Erica and I started laughing when she showed up on screen because we we're like, "There's the girl with the hat." And it's like you've been going to this community theater in your town <laughs> for thirty years, and no matter what the play is, yeah. you know that these ten people are going to show up. Um, I'm so glad they talked Joe Pesci into coming out of retirement because I actually think he gives the performance I of the film. I was just about to say those exact words. That someone might argue... It's the, I think it's the best he's ever been. Yes, because now there's this other side to his performance yeah. that his early performances didn't have. Um, I was a little distracted by Pacino doing the usual Pacino, Pacino stuff. right. But that's what Hoffa was like. Yeah. I mean, Hoffa was loud and brash and <coughs> over the top. <coughs> De Niro was so great that it makes you see a lot of the movies that he made in the last 10 years as just, this is Well, we, and it reminds you of just how miscast he is in uh, Joker, which you did not see, right? But he's the talk show host. He's the talk show host. Um, Completely miscast. That someone once, I think this was an essay in a magazine, said that eventually we we tear down our heroes right. and we, we turn them into self-parodies. And uh, there's not a hint of that in this. No. And I actually really appreciate that De Niro has played characters like this, but his Frank Sheeran is completely different than other um mob characters he's mm -hmm, played mm -hmm. it's it's a magnificent magnificent film it is it's one of the best of the year for sure and i'm not ready for I th mike or adam said this when they were talking about it on the podcast either last week or the week before i'm not ready for scorsese to ever stop making movies but if this was his last movie it would be pretty perfect it's for a number of reasons yes. one of which is that it's sort of elegiac yeah to begin with yeah and just uh, moves at such a different energy it's like a movie he could only make at this point in his career and i don't think this is spoiling anything but one thing i really loved i was thinking about it on the way here for anyone who says you know your movies really glorify that behavior there's a stylistic insert in this movie that he's never really done before he's he's done titles on the screen in various right, right, ways, right. but all of the minor characters yeah, yeah. get a freeze frame, yeah. and we find out how they met their end. Right. And it's a litany of horror. Anyone who these people came in contact with. And then there's one yes. that's not, and it almost comes across as a joke. In fact, doesn't, doesn't the title say he was well-liked? Yes. Yeah. 
Um, I don't think that's spoiling anything, but it's a it's a it's a formal innovation that that I thought really worked in the yeah. film and calls attention to the fact that he's not doing it with the main characters. Right. Because that's where we're right. That's where we're headed. Right. Um, yeah. It reminded me that while I haven't seen a ton of movies that I've liked this year, the ones that I have liked, I've liked a real lot, you know, parasite this once upon a time in Hollywood. Like we've had a handful of genuinely great movies this year. Yes. And there's still some more to come. I hope. And I promised my lovely wife that, of course, I would watch it again on Netflix oh, yes. because she wasn't able to go. And, my God, I'm looking forward to watching it Oh, gladly, it yeah. I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood five times in the theater. <laughs> yeah. If Highland Park was only closer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd go back. Um, oh, by the way, I don't think I'll be in town, but that that uh, that gadget on my cell phone that shows you the showtimes. Okay. I don't know for how many days, but it's going to be at the at Pickwick. At the Pickwick, I saw that. And you know about the Pickwick's new uh, screen. No. I told you about it during G-Fest. Oh, okay, yeah. They installed the, it's the biggest damn thing. I mean, that was, theater was Yeah, that's huge. amazing. Yeah. Um, that if you live in the Chicagoland area and you can find out when the screenings are at the Pickwick, it's got to be in the big theater. That would be something to see. Yeah, for Good sure. Lord. For sure. Easily the biggest screen in the area now. Um, anything else that you saw that you want to talk about? Just those three. Okay. Um, I only have two others that I will briefly touch upon. One, uh, we saw Charlie's Angels, which I wanted to like. I, I'm a big Kristen Stewart fan. I want to. I was excited that it was written and directed by Elizabeth Banks. That you know Hollywood was giving a female filmmaker a chance to write and direct a big movie like this. Uh, I didn't really enjoy it. Rob reviewed it for the site. He, I really enjoyed rob's review me too and because he like liked you, it more than i did he though. was he was trying to give it the benefit of the doubt yeah but what i really liked about his review was the last paragraph when he said make no mistake oh yeah this will tank yes but and i wonder if he was relieved when it did <laughs> well that's interesting not happy that it did but relieved when it tanked elizabeth banks put out this tweet that said i know everyone's disappointed i'm proud to have my name on this film yeah and then some more time passed, and then she blamed the failure of the film on the fact that superhero movies are no. male-centric and no one will see film, women in, that in was, action films. Those, were, those quotes were taken from an interview that was given before the film came out. Okay, my bad. But they were suddenly circulated after the movie bombed as though she had okay. just said these things. Because instantly someone said, well... Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman are uh, okay. Right, that explains it. So I, it wasn't her Twitter account. It was someone else posting a quote. I believe so. Okay, yes. my bad. Um, yeah, the movie's a mess and not nearly as fun as I wanted it to be. I'm I'm a fan of the 2000 movie. The first one I really like. Yeah, I'm not a, as much a fan of Full Throttle, but uh, the first one's fun. Does this new reboot have a Crispin Glover cameo? It does not, sadly. That was going to be the deciding factor for me. <laughs> it has a different actor more or less playing the... It has Jonathan Tucker more or less playing the Crispin Glover role. But it gets very bogged down in like plot and trying to establish that it's a worldwide agency now and Bosley is a title, not a person, right. and there's angels all over. It gets Lots very bogged down in like trying to 
create a franchise, more or less. Because the trailer was trying, I guess, not to spoil that. Because every time I saw the trailer, because I saw it dozens of times, I always had the same question. What's Patrick Stewart doing in this movie? And who does he play? Right. Um, Yeah, Kristen Stewart definitely amusing herself. And having a good time. That's what so, Rob and, 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 and is fun to watch. I was worried because she sometimes gets swallowed up in movies of this size, but I think she found a way to make it work. So I, I was disappointed by it. And the only other movie I'll talk about is I finally saw, I'd never seen it, Being There. Oh. Um, Did you see it on TCM? I watched our Criterion disc. Okay, because it was on TCM just the other oh, day. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just showed a class, Harold and Maude. And was on a Hal Ashby kick. And I have to ask, because when I was in high school, one of those film days, the, the teacher showed Harold and Maude. And for all of us sitting there, it was like we had never seen anything like that in yeah. our lives. And yeah. it sort of opened our brains. What did your class think of Harold and Maude? Um, they were a little more receptive to it than I expected, while still not liking it very much. Oh, boy. <laughs> so... All those suicide attempts are amazing. Yeah. The Cat Stevens score is amazing. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Um, well, I'm showing them Bottle Rocket now so that they can see where Wes Anderson got a bunch yeah, of stuff from. Where, where he started. Um, so what did you think of being there? I really liked being there. And I will say for the first hour or so, I was not 100% on board. I was kind of like, so it's Forrest Gump? He just kind of, not that Forrest, not that it ripped off Forrest Gump, but that he just kind of falls into these situations. Right. But the more it went on and the deeper the movie got... What the film is really about. Yeah. Uh, then I was like, oh, okay, this is really interesting. I'm still trying to get a handle on what a Hal Ashby movie is. Right. You had mentioned I've that. I've talked about this before and website. I still can't get it. Well, that's one of the wonders of Hal Ashby. Yeah. That he was a little bit more chameleon-like. I would argue that being there has one of the greatest last shots... Oh, my goodness. ...in film history. But then, I will say this, and Erica told me that Peter Sellers didn't like it... And thought he was robbed of an Oscar because of it. When it cuts to like bloopers during the credits, oh, um, it steps all over the last oh, no, shot. No, 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 it's that blooper thing was such a mistake. What it's the so, hell? It's so stupid. And oddly enough, when I watched it the other night on TCM, knowing about the bloopers because I've seen that movie a dozen times, now I'm watching the scene where that would have gone. Right. And that maybe maybe they couldn't because they never got a take where he didn't laugh. But that's where that belongs. Right. That's the fruition of of all that. Uh, what Rupert or whatever the guy's name right. is, Roland, right. told me to tell you this. Um, I've actually seen. There's a version that doesn't have that. Really, there's a version where the where the closing credits are completely over a television and someone is schizophrenically changing the channels. Weird. I've seen that. Weird. And that's that's what the ending should that Yeah. Or just over black for crying oh out loud. Oh no, the it's it's so awful. It's one of the most amazing last shots. It's the it's and what made Sellers, me love the movie. And Sellers thought the bloopers robbed him or the last shot? The bloopers. I, I agree with him. Yeah. It's just what the, yeah. what the fuck? Yeah, it's real weird, and it comes way too soon. Yeah, it doesn't let you sit and think about that last shot. Oh no, no, no! You you need a day yeah. to think about <laughs> right, that last shot. Right. It, that's one of my favorite things ever. Yeah, Roger Ebert writes about it in his great movies essay. 
he said he had a class and he showed it to them and that they were inventing all these reasons like there's a pier and it's covered by water and you can't see. <laughs> and he said no there's no it's there's clear, no pier it's clear what this is we can't make up there being a pier if it's not shown to be in the film Again, I think I've told this story before. Back when I taught Kafka's The Metamorphosis, which is one of the most hopeless, <laughs> um, sad, downer short stories ever written, every year I had AP students who would try to twist <clears throat> some sort of... It's to make us appreciate... No. <laughs> no. Is this the first time you've been confronted with the fact that life might be awful and hopeless? Yeah. What is it? Painful and sh- that Hemingway quote: "Life is painful, brutish, and short." No, <laughs> it's to make us grasp. They're young. Give them their optimism. No, I will. But but when it's completely ignoring the evidence, oh yeah, as oh, that's Ebert the problem. Students, yeah, that no. became very popular post Inception, where then everything, the end of the Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> Well, that's just Alfred's dream. Like, no, the movie isn't telling you that. You can't just make up things that the movie is including. It's very, it's very clear. (laughs) All right, let's get into our 90s lists. But you really like being there. I did. It's, yeah, it's so good. I have yet to see a Hal Ashby movie I don't like. And because I now follow Ileana Douglas on the Twitter machine. Oh, she knows a lot about movies. Yeah, she actually does. and, and, And her Twitter feed doesn't waste your time um i marvel because she talks about her grandfather a lot or uncle um she's melvin douglas got it and what a career he had yeah um he's in the notchka for 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 crying out loud. oh wow really yeah he's the he's the male lead in the notchka he's the male lead in the old holy dark cow house. holy cow i didn't even put that together and and then that that's the same guy in, in the, the 70s Nachka. he reinvents his career right. because there that's was, how i picture him there was 70s. being there and then there was another one another big hit with melvin douglas is um, is he in um is he in ghost story isn't he in the changeling Oh yeah, he's the he's the rich guy who doesn't want anyone yeah. finding out. Yeah, um, made a slow oh, and he's in, he is in Ghost Story also, right? Because I believe he had, if if I'm wrong, uh, forgive me. Um, that there was a period of time where he went back to Broadway, so he wasn't in movies for a period of time. But what a career he yeah. had! Yeah, and he's so good in being there. For a number of reasons. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Everybody's really good. Um, Let's talk about our 90s list. Yes. Uh, We're calling this Overlooked in the 90s. And the 90s, did we appreciate it when it was happening? I was raising a baby and changing diapers and working at this job. No, we did not appreciate it because we we thought all art was bad in the 90s. Um, And we were wrong. We were wrong, it turns out, because... As we were noticing, as we made this, these lists, we have enough movies on these lists to do multiple shows, so we there, may very well do this again. Might be a part two. Yeah. So in the 90s, people stopped wearing all that goddamn neon clothing from the <laughs> 80s, and they started dressing right. Sure. A lot of flannel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The start of that. Yeah. Uh, era. <laughs> era. Era. Um, By so the gonna, way. Oh, go ahead. I, I'm guessing you do. In your household, 
when you're watching television or listening to the radio or something like that, yeah. and someone says ERA, yeah. does someone invariably say it? Of course. Okay. I'm wondering if that's true for all of our listeners as well. <laughs> I hope so. Or for, for Rob and Adam and, and Mark I, and such. I certainly hope so. Because if someone came to our house who didn't know us at all, <laughs> they would that would really raise eyebrows. I've done it on random podcasts. I'll back away from the microphone because I have to do it. It's like compulsory. Uh, but if I'm worried that the person on the other end isn't going to understand it, I will just do it very – I'll just – I'm afraid it's going to happen in a movie. I'm watching a documentary. This, of course, was the era of McCarthyism. Era. Oh, yeah. No, Erica and I will lean into one another and say, era. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) So this was the era era. era of really great movies. And um, looking over my list of stuff I had seen and then going online, and uh, Patrick uh, cast a net on the Twitter machine today. Yes. Which... Again, showed me, oh, I didn't even consider those movies. So many so. answers, including lots of movies on my list. Yeah, I I tried to stay away from stuff I thought you would talk about. Okay. And I tried to stay away from other movies that we've talked about in some depth. Yeah, so, I for instance... Generally tried to as well. Quiz Show is a masterpiece. Yes. Which I showed in class for ever because I wanted my kids to see a film that was about that about having some sense of personal integrity and morality um so that didn't make my list because i thought i had gone on and on about that Mm -hmm. and there's other films we've done podcasts on and i really wanted this to be underrated or overlooked so for instance i think we all know that the big lebowski is a great movie and there's these movies, because Casino is one of them, and you talked about Casino last week, and The Big Lebowski is one of them. I think A Few Good Men is one of them. They're on cable a lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And it's weird. If you get Lebowski, you click, and wherever you are in the movie, it's delightful, and you can just either watch it till the end or just watch a half an hour. A Few Good Men, a little bit more problematic if you get, the end of a good of a few good men you're like okay i'm gonna watch the last half hour that's the fireworks and then i would argue for casino i this is personal to me i want the first hour right sharon stone's a great actress but once it becomes about their failing marriage i don't think it's anywhere near as interesting as all the stuff about the most entertaining stuff for sure and i still remember seeing that for the first time in the theater and just being fascinated by the machination of it. Mm-hmm. Here's where that money goes. Right. Here's the way we do this, and here's the way we do this. So if you get Casino at the very beginning, you're like, yes! <laughs> and I think the exact right time to shut it off is when they beat up uh, Lester Diamond, when they beat up... Oh, okay, James Woods. James Woods. Because A, that's when it goes south for me, and B... And I know this doesn't make me a very nice person. I like to see James Woods getting beat up because <laughs> we differ politically on yeah. a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. I, I could watch that scene yeah. again and again. And sure. Again. I like to see him getting beat up or pulling things out of his stomach vagina. Either way, I'm easy to please when it comes to Woods. Okay. Woods. I like I like to see the stomach vagina. Yeah. And um, I like to see him skinny dipping with um, – uh, where's my brain? Uh, 
uh, Catwoman, but she wasn't. Sean Young? I oh, like I never saw him, that one. I like to see him skinny dipping with Sean Young. Is that Young. the boost? Yes, to <laughs> celebrate the, the fact that they both have a lot of money and they're high on cocaine. Darn it. Never saw the boost. And uh, L.A. Doug, I know you're listening to this. It's called The Boost. It's about 20 minutes in. <laughs> Check it out. That's that's going out to my friend Doug. Uh, what is your first overlooked 90s movie? Okay. Um, I told you before that on my original list I cheated, and then I redid the list, but the new list still has some cheats. All so right. you're going to have to afford These are all from cheats. the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> but late 80s. So in 1989... Disney releases a film called The Little Mermaid. I'm familiar. And it's a smash yeah. because it's really good right. and it has good songs. It's the first good Disney movie in some time. Although, if you've watched it lately, I it's, have. it's not yet it's not yet at the animation standard that they would quickly regain. Sure. It's there's some sketchy stuff. And um at your daughter's suggestion. I caught a, 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 a rerun of The Little Mermaid Live. Ooh, I watched none of it. Just the weirdest bastard hybrid. <laughs> My wife and I thought, were they workshopping a Broadway production and they nixed it? And then they said, well, we got to do something with these costumes. <laughs> it was a live audience without chairs. Oh. They're all standing. Delightful. Like at the Riviera, watching The Little Mermaid on a screen. Yeah. And the minute anyone sings, it cuts to an actor in costume singing the song. And then it goes back to the movie. So it was like, what is this? <laughs> what is this karaoke with celebrities? It's just so weird. And I only caught an hour of it, so I missed what your daughter said was Flounder was creepy. Oh, Flounder was creepy. The way they did Flounder yeah. live was yeah. creepy. But... Uh, Queen Latifah shows up and sings You Poor Pathetic Souls or whatever that song is called. And it's fine, and there's some puppeteering. and But it's like it's neither fish nor fowl. Excuse uh. me. What is this? <laughs> so in 1989, uh, Disney releases Little Mermaid, and it's a smash, and it's quickly followed up because if Disney knows anything, it's how to make money. 1991, Beauty and the Beast. 1992, Aladdin. 1994, Lion King. 1995, um, uh, Pocahontas and Toy Story. I mean, yeah. boom, 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 yeah, boom, yeah. boom. And you'd figure that other studios would look and say, you know, there might be some money here. So what happens is a couple studios put their toe in the water, one of them a lot more than their toe, and we get some pretenders to the crown. We get some competition for Disney. And I'm pretty sure that all three of these films were disappointing at the box office. Okay. But my first uh, overlooked film of the films of the 90s were three animation masterpieces that if you haven't seen it, you should seek them out. I want to do them in order. Uh, Princess Mononoke yeah. from Studio Ghibli. Um, Jake had some interest in seeing this, and now I look down and realize he was seven. <laughs> so once again, my son had taste. Yeah coming out of his ass when he was a kid <laughs> he dragged us to see princess mononoke and it was a revelation yeah i had never seen an animated film like that or that was a little bit more for adults right for i sure. i think kids would like it spirited away even more but princess mononoke is this 
epic masterpiece of animation that's that's incredible, and you need to see it. And then um, Brad Bird makes The Iron Giant, which is such a wonderful film yeah. and such a wonderful message. I still call uh, Espresso Coffeezilla <laughs> from that movie, and... I don't think it did very well at the box office. Now it's beloved and revered and Mondo sells action figures. And then finally, and this is a film I've written about, if you want to look for it on the the alphabetical movie list, um, it goes through all these permutations and Warner Brothers is considering reigniting their animation studio and for a while Michael Jackson's attached to it. But it's finally released and it's called Cats Don't Dance. And you wound up seeing it, didn't you? I still have not seen it. Okay. I I wanted to see it since your column. I have a Warner Archive DVD. Okay. And that's the only way to see it. And I'm sure it's out of print. It might even be in a cardboard case. I think it is. It's pretty old. And it's so entertaining. Uh, Not only does it have great songs, but it's about a certain period in Hollywood. So it's full of all this Hollywood detail. And Gene Kelly consulted on the choreography. Good Lord. What's not to like? It's terrific. It's terrific fun. Kids would like it, too. So my first choice is Animation Renaissance. Okay. Not Disney. Non-Disney. I remember going with Doug to see Princess Mononoke, and neither one of us really knew what to expect. And it's like two and a half hours. My biggest memory is there's a creature that's like a rolling ball of... Uh, leeches or worms or okay. something. Okay, I and kind of remember this. It's sort of consuming something else, right. and it's like, A, I've never seen anything like that before, and B, how the hell did they <laughs> animate that? The animation is so yeah. incredible. Yeah. I've only seen a handful of Studio Ghibli movies at this point, um, and they're all interesting, even if I don't... I haven't loved every single one that I've seen, but they're always fascinating. AMC is doing a festival, yeah. which seems to be a repeat of last year's festival. Right. Because I kept thinking, why is that sign still up? Right. But it's the Mononoke screenings were this past weekend. Oh, okay. So I think the first one was so successful, they decided to redo it. Yeah. And once a month, they show one of the Studio Ghibli films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. My first pick is um, Catherine Bigelow's Blue Steel. Starring Jamie Lee Curtis uh, and Ron Silver. And this uh, did come up on Twitter. Somebody had suggested this. I believe it was Rosalie Lewis. Uh, It was already on my list and I had wanted to talk about it because we talk a lot about Catherine Bigelow. And yet we tend to skip over this movie because this was the one that she made between Near Dark and Point Break. We talk about those two movies a lot, but we skip right over Blue Steel. Uh, there's no Blu-ray for it, which could be part of Well, there is, but not a U.S. Blu-ray. I, I think there's like a French Blu-ray. Is the French Blu-ray made out of steel? Uh, perhaps. It was yeah, Blue Steel Blu-ray. Um, Blu-ray, and that's how William Friedkin says Blu-ray. Um, it, it's just a really good drama. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis plays a cop who shoots somebody basically in a convenience store one night while during a robbery. And then loses her gun, and Ron Silver picks it up and goes crazy, kind of. It's a solid action drama during a time when those weren't really being made. Right. But it's not really an action movie. No, not really. It's more of a drama. It's a drama. And I remember liking it at the time it came out and really thinking more than Near Dark or Point Break, 
that Bigelow was saying some things about women in the workplace. Definitely. That it that there was more specifically uh, there was more specific content about being a woman, which makes sense because she is. And so many of her films are about men. Yeah. Really up until, I haven't seen The Weight of Water, but up until uh, bleh, 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 Zero, Zero Dark Thirty. Right. Where she makes a lot of movies that are sort of masculine. Um, Men-centric. Right. And that this one is about a woman. And Jamie Lee Curtis, I think, gives such a great performance. And it reminds you that, like, she probably should have been a bigger movie star. She was always a big movie star, but she was just like one person in a cast. She rarely carried a movie. And and that there are smaller films, and I'm thinking here Grandview USA and yeah. um, Love Letters. Which I've never seen. That really pointed to the fact that she was a very good actress, not just a great actress in things like True Lies. Right, right. She was, yeah. That she could do smaller films. And right. be very effective in a small independent film. Yeah. Um, speaking of Catherine Bigelow, um, when I was at Highland Park yesterday, wow, that was yesterday, to see The Irishman, there was a commercial on the screen, and it was a commercial before a movie that wasn't for popcorn or Coca-Cola. It was a commercial for something that I had never seen a commercial for in a movie theater, and I took this to be, well, this is Highland Park, dummy. Mm. So right? so Martin Scorsese's in the commercial, talking about the creative spirit, and Jim Cameron is in the commercial, talking about the creative spirit, and the gentleman who directed Birdman is in the commercial, yeah. talking about making movies and how everyone should make a movie, and Catherine Bigelow shows up with uh, uh, storyboards from... Uh, um, uh, the Hurt Locker, and and I'm like, well, this is this just for the movies are great, or is this something specific to the theater? It's a commercial for Rolex. Oh, for Rolex watches, <laughs> because all four of them wear a Rolex, or Rolex gave them a watch, or it's the creative watch. And I'm like, only in Highland Park, yeah, right? Only in Highland for Park. Rolexes. Um, I could have just as easily put Strange Days on this list, which is another kind of overlooked Catherine Bigelow movie that I don't think fully comes together. I think there's some stuff in the end that doesn't work of that movie, but it is visionary. It's messy. Yeah. But I remember seeing it probably on the night that it opened and just thinking, this is the goddamnedest thing. Yeah. And being actually very surprised when it didn't do better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because that movie's got everything. And there's still no Blu-ray of that, only a non-anamorphic DVD. That movie has Tom Sizemore. <laughs> in a wig. Uh, Juliette Lewis. Possibly also in a wig, singing PJ Harvey. A Woman with Nowhere to Turn. What? I'm channeling stuff on. Oh, God. <laughs> got it. Uh, my second uh, choice is uh, to bring up that there was a filmmaker at one time named Albert Brooks, who made these small comedies that are among the greatest comedies ever made, I think. And I remember it was a year or two ago, and suddenly Netflix was featuring yeah. all of his movies. And then they went away. But for a brief period of time, there was a lot of noise on the Twitter machine. Oh my God! Yeah, why right. haven't I seen this? Because people were discovering modern romance, right. which is astounding, and and his other films I think too. That's how I saw real life for the first time. Um, 
the 90s saw Albert Brooks releasing Defending Your Life, which I really, really like. It's like a, it's like a modern Preston Sturges movie. Right. You could dismiss it as saying it's a little old-fashioned and it's his most mainstream big studio movie, but maybe that's only because Meryl Streep is in it. Defending Your Life has some ideas in it that are very interesting mm-hmm. and, and trenchant, especially ideas about how you might choose to live your life. And then five years later, because he works very slowly, this is an Albert Brooks double feature. Defending Your Life and Mother. I haven't seen Mother. And there's been a bunch of other films come out called Mother, including the um, the recent one with the exclamation point, but... This might speak to my relationship with my deceased mother, but uh, Albert Brooks plays a man who has another breakup and decides that all of his problems with women stem from his relationship with his mother, the first relationship he ever had with a woman. And he decides to move back in with his mother to his childhood home. And Albert Brooks's mother is played by Debbie Reynolds in the performance of her career Mm. because it is... Without vanity, it is so funny. And beyond the plot of the film, and there's plenty of plot and machinations, every scene between Albert Brooks and Debbie Reynolds speaks, I think, to every man's relationship with their mother. Um, She is older. She's a senior citizen. She's set in her ways. He has a problem with every single thing that she does. And... She buys all this cheese because it's on sale, and he wonders why she has all this cheese, and she says, this is good cheese. You can't get this cheese. And he responds, that's because you have all of it. (laughs) And it's 90 minutes of that, including one of my favorite scenes from the 90s. Um, Albert Brooks in the film has a brother uh, played by the Northern Exposure guy. Uh, shoot. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> Quiz show, right? Same guy, Rob Morrow? I think it's Rob Morrow. Okay. Don't quote me. And his brother, Rob Morrow, Patrick's looking it up, his brother, Rob Morrow, is much more successful than he is and keeps buying the mother very expensive gifts. See, you're going to you're gonna look it up and there's all these other there's movies. There's too many mothers. There's so too many. I got to go in through the back door. Go in through the back door. That's what the 90s was all about. Um, so the Rob Morrow character keeps buying the mother all these expensive gifts to curry favor. It's Rob Morrow. Because one of the film, one of the other things the film talks about very effectively is sibling rivalry and the various dynamics of being in a family where there's more than one kid. So the Rob Morrow character buys the mother a video phone this is in 1996 you can see the person you're talking to right and it becomes this running joke that there is no way the mother can work this there are people of a certain age my parents were among them and albert brooks keeps saying this is pointless. Right. She will never be able to operate this machine, and it's it's hilarious. All right. I need to see Mother. It also says some interesting things about the creative process because Albert Brooks in the film plays a novelist, and one of the things he discovers when he moves back home is that before she had children, his mom was an aspiring writer. 
and that sort of fuels the plot. Okay. It's a beautiful little film that'll make you laugh a ton. I remember the trailers for it in, you know, 1995 or whenever it came out. And at the time, I was in high school and seeing the trailers and thinking, I don't think that movie is for me. And I think that's the problem because, especially for the 90s, it was just too small. Yeah. It's very tiny. But... It's about every single American man's relationship <laughs> with his mother. Well, now really, I have to see it. It really is. Yeah. It's so great. All right. All right. I'll I, check it I, out. I used to own that on Laserdisc. Oh, darn it. Um, my guess is it's streaming somewhere, but uh, I know there was a DVD of it. I don't think there's a Blu-ray. Um, so it's my so next great. pick is, oh, you can buy it for five bucks on Amazon. On oh, DVD? no, you can't. Uh, you can rent it in HD though for thirteen for four bucks on, on Amazon. On Amazon, yeah. Okay, because I haven't seen it in a while. I, I might watch it tonight. Yeah. Um. Oh, I see. You can buy it in standard def for five bucks <laughs> or thirteen. I was going to get excited HD. because I think this was this year. This has been a long year. One of the highlights of this year was when you told me that. Um, Paper House was available oh, on sale. That might have been last year or two years ago, honestly. In HD yeah. from Apple. Yeah. Ooh, For very exciting. cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my next pick uh, came out in 1991. It is from the four-month window when America tried to make Richard Grieco a movie star, and it is called If Looks Could Kill, um, a goofy little spy comedy um, Written by Darren Starr, who would go on to create Sex and the City, uh, with a st- from a story by Fred Decker. Did the poster feature Mr. Greco sitting in an insouciant manner? He's like laying across a car. In, 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 a, in, a, in a convertible. Uh, yeah, he's like laid across the hood of a convertible with his arms behind his head. He's wearing his Letterman jacket. Why do I remember the poster? I've never seen the film. <laughs> because, I don't know. I remember the joke from Weekend Update in Saturday Night Live where Dennis Miller said, if looks could kill, get Greco a mirror, babe. <laughs> and I was like, Greco, you burnt Miller style. Um, it's a movie that should be terrible. You know what I mean? Like, it's it, it, it everything about it seems like it would be obnoxious. And I won't make a case for Richard Greco, who kind of smarms his way through the movie. But everything else in the movie... It's so clever and so entertaining and so funny. Um, it's 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 kind of a one of those bad movies made by a bunch of really talented people, and it's secretly good. And you have like Linda Hunt basically doing Gerda Frobe. Is that her name? No, I messed her. Oh, um, um <laughs> no, that, that's I messed Goldfinger. Up her name. Um, Rosa Klebb. Rosa Klebb. Gerda Frobe. What am I talking about? Who's uh, the actress is is mentioned in the movie in the song Mac the Knife. She's actually okay. name checked in the song Mac the Knife. It'll come to me. She has this necklace that turns into a bullwhip the whole movie. She's the henchman. The actress who played Rosa Klebb was Lada Lenya. I listen. I was nowhere close. So I'm glad you came up with Rosa Klebb. Um, Roger Daltrey plays a spy. Uh, Roger Reese is sort of the the bad guy. There's a very funny subplot with his entire French class being held hostage by some terrorists because they think that they're all spies. He plays a a kid who goes to France on a high school trip 
and then is mistaken for a spy and gets Patrick's pulled gonna, into the action. Patrick's going to check Amazon on this one and find out that it's only available as a flip book. <laughs> I have, uh, I think it's a Warner Archive DVD. This that sounds I have. like something I have to see. Um, Richard Grieco always reminded me because I'm not sure if I've ever seen a single Richard Grieco movie, but that I would always confuse him with the gentleman in Shag who looks like Matt Dillon. Yeah, How's Robert, that for obscure? Robert, Robert Russler. Okay. Does Robert Russler look like Richard Grieco? Uh, I guess Does enough. it look like they could be brothers? Perhaps. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think it's very entertaining and one of those movies that's secretly good. It looks like like teenage trash. Like, let's make Richard Grieco a movie star because he's popular on TV for six months because he was like johnny depp's replacement on 21 oh, yeah. jump street you know it was like such a fad oh, he's and he got basically depp. He's got, got depp written all over he's him. got his one shot at movie stardom um and uh i think it's a very entertaining movie so that's my pick speaking of movie palaces when i started teaching uh a colleague of mine who lived in the city took me to the esquire one night before they split it into 12 theaters okay and speaking of Albert Brooks, we were there to see coming um, Lost in America. Lost in America. And I think that's still the largest movie theater I've ever been in because it was like weeks away from them ruining it and putting up walls. Because I think at that point it seated 3,000. Oh, was shit. It was crazy. We sat in the balcony. And then they ruined were you, it. Were you worried about being assassinated? My, I've told this story before when my parents took us to see Star Trek three at, I think the prospect theater. And I had just learned about Abraham Lincoln in school. And I was positive because we sat in the balcony at the Mount prospect theater that, uh, we were going to be assassinated. Patrick too soon. <laughs> um, that, uh, the bulldozers rolled in and they built this theater that was insane full of elevators and levels and what was once a single theater became 12 and once they ruined it and split it up after that it didn't last long i if memory serves um the next film i saw after they split it up uh was grace of my heart from allison anders starring of course Ileana douglas and it seems at first to sort of be oscar bait but it's so good. It's so good. And it has so much to say yeah. about women in a where films sometimes struggle to say anything interesting about women. Um, it's got amazing music because Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach wrote some of the songs. Right. So God at, give me strength. Is that what the, it's called? Yeah, yeah. At the point in the film where the character has this enormous hit. She sings a song where you're like, that's like one of the best songs I've heard in a really, really long time. Uh, I have one quibble, and it, it's often leveled at films like this. The film is fiction, but the characters are clearly based on real people. Yeah. So the Grace character seems to be Carol King, but in the reality of the film, she does collaborate with someone who's supposed to be um, 
Brian, um, Brian Wilson? Phil Spector. Oh, Phil Spector. Because John, yeah. the John right. Turturro character is Phil Spector. Right. And then later marries Brian Wilson. Right. Or who's supposed to be Brian Wilson. But you keep wondering, is this film taking place in a universe where Phil Spector and Brian Wilson exist? Right. So that's odd. But it, like I said, it's a quibble. I think I haven't seen it in a while. Um very frequently on the Twitter machine, people are calling out for it to be released as a Criterion release. Ooh. Um, think of the extras. I mean, yeah, she would do I'd a commentary track and maybe songs that didn't make the... I mean, you've seen it. It's really good. Yes. And there have been several films like it that are not as good. Right. Yeah, it was one of those movies that, you know, in the 90s, and I just kind of wrote about this because I was writing about Ed Burns. You had a bunch of filmmakers who made an indie that kind of popped, and that was Allison Anders with Gas Food Lodging, and then they got a studio movie. That was their reward. And so Kevin Smith makes Mallrats, and Robert Rodriguez makes Desperado, and Ed Burns makes She's the One, and Allison Anders makes Grace of My Heart, which is she makes for Universal, and it kind of bombed, and people don't talk about it enough because it's a, an amazing movie. Right, and... There's there's a difference between all these movies you're talking about. Oh sure, Desperado, not comparing terrific, quality, <laughs> and Grace of My Heart. I think is a masterpiece. What is your opinion of Mallrats? I whatever. I mean, it's easy to put on, but I'm not going to argue that it's a good movie. I think it's a lot of people love it. It's lesser Kevin Smith. I would agree with that. A lot of people love it because there are there are films of his that I like. Yes. Um, if you've never seen Grace of My Heart, and again, like we were talking just now. I don't think it's gotten a Blu-ray release. My DVD seems very old. Yes. It's from back when Universal was doing their collector series, and it has, like, the gold at the top and the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can picture I, the cover. I, yeah, I, I don't even that. own the DVD, but I can picture the cover. Uh, Eric Stoltz is in it. He sure is. As Jerry Goffin. Right. But it's not Jerry Goffin <laughs> because... I didn't say Jerry Gallo. I said Jerry Callow. My Cousin Vinny is another one of those movies you can catch pieces of oh, on cable that Speaking very of entertaining. Um, I watched Grace of My Heart about a year ago when I was in the midst of a pretty bad depressive episode, and it was not the right movie for me to watch because mm. the stuff with Matt Dillon yeah. really, really fucked me up. Um, so I'm a little scared to return to that movie. Because my next question was going to be, does it hold up? Because I haven't oh, seen absolutely. it in a while. Yes, very much so. It's really, really good. Um, yeah, I want more people to seek it out. It really suggested a direction for musicals in the 90s that didn't happen. That, you know, what, what, what became a genre on um, Broadway... The uh, the songbook musical, right, 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 jukebox um, musical, yeah. That that grace of my heart seems to be a, a blueprint for something you can use that might satisfy young people who don't like traditional musicals right, right. where people sing for no reason. Right. I'm so tempted to call an audible here and pick a different movie because it's also a musical, but I'm going to save it for our next episode. Okay. Um, but it it's one that was very much high on my list. Um, and instead, I'm going to talk about a movie from 1993, a southern gothic noir called Flesh and Bone. 
uh, written and directed by Steve Clovis, who is best known now for his work on the Harry Potter movies. He adapted all the Harry Potters. And this is Meg Ryan and Dennis this Quaid. This is Dennis Quaid oh, and okay. Meg Ryan. It is um, uh, almost as slow as movies get <laughs> and and dark. And really good. Really good. My memory of it, which I don't have many, <laughs> is that you could fairly say it's dripping with atmosphere. Yes, yeah. absolutely. James Caan uh, plays Dennis Quaid's father. He is not a nice guy. Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan. It's interesting because, you know, they were married at the time. And you sometimes see this where couples, they pick projects to make together. And you're like, this is the wrong project for you guys to make. So this is not a vehicle for the two of you. That happens a lot. It really does. It's so rare that they know the movie they should make together. Even at the time, I feel like Eyes Wide Shut kind of seemed like the wrong movie for those two to make. And now you watch it and you're like, no, it's the perfect movie for those two to make. Wait, you two were still married when you made this? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. This caused your divorce, right? This um, a film that I often talk about, even though I've only seen it under compromised circumstances. Uh, can can Hieronymus Merkin oh ever forget Mercy Hump and find true happiness? <laughs> um, Didn't you write about that? Uh, more than once. Okay. It's it's my Moby Dick. It's my <laughs> white whale. Um, the the woman who was on Dynasty Collins, Joan Collins, Joan Collins cited that movie in the divorce proceedings. Oh, no against Anthony Newley. Wow, they were married at the time that they made the film. She plays a character named Polyester Poontang. Oh boy, <laughs> and she has a song in the film called also "Chalk and name. Cheese," which what? I guess is an expression in England for two things that are very different, but might of <laughs> if you're not wearing your glasses and the song is called chalk and cheese and she sings a song called chalk and cheese and it's about her and how different she is than him and she's singing about her husband and they're about to be divorced wow. i'm guessing in the divorce settlement he got the chalk she got the cheese <laughs> very nice um, I don't know that Flesh and Bone caused Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid to split up. I think that was her fucking Russell Crowe, I think, that caused them to split up. Um, but it's uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, maybe her first starring role. She plays like young Wendy in Hook, which would have come out a couple of years prior, I believe. But yeah, very young. There's a fourth character, basically, who's like a young con artist who travels with James Conn, and it's Gwyneth Paltrow. A very young Gwyneth Paltrow, and you watch her, and you're like, oh, I get why you're a movie star. You're clearly going to go on to big things here. Um, I rewatched it today. It's Like I said, it's it's slow. Not everyone will have the patience for it. It is a dark film. It doesn't have a lot of really positive things to say about human nature or about fathers and sons. I'm drawn to movies that are dark about fathers and sons. As well you should be. Yeah. I wrote about my father <laughs> yes, you this did. week, yes, you did. and as I told your lovely wife on the on the text machine, um, he's been gone for thirty years, and I can channel him at will. <laughs> I'm not going to do it because I think it would be disrespectful to his memory. But right now, I could turn into my dad and talk to you like my dad. But I'm not going to do that. Um, ask Rosie and Charlie occasionally to make them laugh. I will channel my father's voice, like telling them to settle down. (coughs) 
Hey, you two kids, knock it off. Stop that now. And they know that I'm being hyperbolic, and it's this crazy voice that's not mine, and they laugh. Um, wait, I'm, I lost the thread. Um, oh, um, the older I get, the more I like slow. Yeah. And I was really afraid watching The Irishman that the the pace of that might put some people off because it's long. What 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 am I'm I jo- I'm joking. Oh. <laughs> I, go no, go ahead. Just talk. Um I thought I said something that made <laughs> no, you laugh. I tried to respond and it came out choked like <sighs> Anyway. My interpretation of what you just did was I knew your father. That's exactly <laughs> like you were laughing in recognition. No, sorry. But you never met my dad. I never did, no. Good Lord. Um, the Irishman is long but never boring, ever. No. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't even say it's slow. Because, again, because it's not. American movies have hypnotized us. At the two-and-a-half-hour mark, you'll be aware of it, especially if the goddamn theater shows a half an hour of trailers <laughs> before the main feature. But you've been tricked. You've been hoodwinked. It's not slow. Right. And the last hour is the most interesting hour of the film. You know what's a weird phenomenon? Uh, if you go to the Mar- Marcus Theater, um, they do a thing where outside the theater it shows, you know, here's all the seats and Auditorium 9 or whatever. And it'll tell you how much time is left on a movie. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, everyone. I've seen that. And so sometimes I'll get up. You know, I have to get up to pee because I'm diabetic and I have to pee a lot. And, uh, and I come back. I, Dr. Sleep had happened. And I really like Dr. Sleep. But I remember stepping out to pee and I was like, oh, my God, there's still an hour and 15 minutes left in this movie. How is that possible? Because of all the trailers. Now, I understand why they show trailers because that's just good business. Like, we want you to come back and see these other movies. But in the last two years, I think it's far more nefarious than this. Because people who go to the movies now know there's 20 minutes of trailers so it's a way for no one to really be late it's a way sure, yeah. for no right. one to get shut right. out right oh, oh oh traffic was bad the people at the box office no problem the trailers are still playing and it's, I, it's kind of ingenious if you think about I it i like trailers but it is almost to the point where by the time they finish i no longer feel like seeing a movie i love because i just saw seven of them i love trailers I, my wife and i used to play a game with the trailers but I, too, think I would like to be done here. Right, right. And part of it is the way that trailers are structured because they show you so much of the movie that you really do feel like you just saw seven movies. Yeah. And now it's time for another two-and-a-half-hour film. The worst thing, and I've talked about this. In fact, we tried to come up with a word for it back when we had a glossary. (laughs) You're sitting through the trailers. Oh, and yeah. one of the trailers is for a movie <laughs> right. you'd much rather be seeing than <laughs> right. the one that you're there for. Yeah, that happens like every time the Rise of Skywalker trailer comes on. I'm like, oh, uh, can that movie be what's playing? That would be you great. You should be able to push a button. <laughs> you know, like at home. Um, so, yeah, Flesh and Bone scared Steve Clovis off of filmmaking for a couple of years. He made the fabulous Baker Boys. Big hit. Everybody loves it. Makes Flesh and Bone. Nobody likes it. Repels everyone. He stops writing movies for several years. So Baker Boys was first. Correct. So Flesh and Bone, we've seen this hundreds of times. Flesh and Bone is the movie you get to make because you made Fabulous Baker Boys. Although I like Fabulous Baker Boys. I've never seen it. 
But uh, that's good, and there's songs in that too. I like the movie. Meg Ryan might be a little miscast every time Meg Ryan goes dark. You kind of feel like, eh, except for maybe in the cut. I feel like anytime she goes dark, it's a little bit of a miscast. Um, well, and because she's so good at at the other thing, I think you're that's like, what it why is, are right? you wasting your time right. not doing the right. thing you're really good at? Quit trying to dim the sun, Meg Ryan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I really like it. It's my next pick. My fourth, and oh, do I have memories of this. Uh, my fourth, um, underrated in the 90s, is Twin Peaks, Fire Walk mm. With Me, which all of our listeners have seen because the, the Criterion did such a great job putting it out, and it's also come out in all the box sets of uh, the TV show. But uh, I used to watch Twin Peaks, the TV show, and let me tell you, in the late 80s, there was nothing else like it. And it's not like today where half the shows that are really getting attention are dark and different, and Twin Peaks was just, if you look at everything else, it would be instructive to watch four hours of television that was on at that time and then watch an episode <laughs> of Twin Peaks because that was a game changer. And um, the scary stuff was so scary. It was on Thursday night, and that was garbage night. And when Twin Peaks was over, I had to go in the garage and drag the, the can to the street, and I was afraid to go in the garage because there might be a little person in there who talks backwards it would have been way worse if Mulholland Drive had been a TV show. Yes, we can we can thank for that. So <laughs> Twin Peaks is this phenomenon, and then they do a second season that's just inexplicable. Um, the The recent Showtime episodes were far better and more ambitious than what Twin Peaks became on ABC. the The Showtime series was sort of what you'd expect David Lynch right. to do if somebody right. hands him a lot of money and says whatever you want. <laughs> Um, and then he makes this film, which uh, was odd because he actually filmed a lot more than was in the film. If you watch the Criterion disc, there's about an hour of stuff that didn't make it. And the hour that it cut out might have satisfied the people who were rabid fans of the TV show. But he chose to make this very odd horror film instead. And Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is one of the scariest films I've ever seen. I mean, it is authentically, it'll get under your skin. And um, we have a mutual friend named Pam, mm -hmm. who at the time was working at the Elk Grove Theater. Mm -hmm. And for some strange reason, the Elk Grove was used a lot for critic screenings at that time. And she got me into the critic screening of Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me months before it was released. Very nice. And I still remember that like it was yesterday. And I sat there and I thought, this is incredible. And then eagerly awaited its release. And I think we all know what happened <laughs> when it was released. I mean, it was vilified. Yeah. It was like a perfect example of that old adage that first the American press builds you up the greatest television series of the decade. And then once they've done that, well, the next logical thing to do is to cut you down to size. Um but uh, time has been kind to Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me because I don't think the film has been diminished at all. Um, at the time, uh, Pam was also one of our babysitters, and the, um, the routine became she would come to our house and watch the laser disc of Peter Pan with my son, who was two, 
and then put him to bed and then watch the laser disc. <laughs> she alone in the darkened house would watch the laser disc of Twin of Tin, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, which we thought was odd, and but it got to the point where we would call it Peter Pam because ah, he yes. watched it so much with Pam, and that was their little thing. Um, clearly, you've seen Firewalk with me. I have. So it's just extraordinary. I, well, here's the thing. I, so I saw I saw it opening night with Pam, who was my high school girlfriend, uh, and was a huge Twin Peaks fan. And I went into it having never seen an episode of Twin Peaks. See, I don't know. I don't. What was that like? Well, because in a weird, very way, confusing. But time has, and I, now I've watched Twin Peaks several times. That you might have been in a better position to <clears throat> to to judge it objectively than the rabid fans of the TV show. I wasn't. I wasn't because again, I was a naive high school freshman, maybe, and wasn't prepared for a David Lynch movie. And I think that's what it was. I think at the time I thought, I don't understand this movie because I've never seen Twin Peaks. But now having seen Twin Peaks several times and having revisited Fire Walk with me, you don't really need to know Twin Peaks. No, not at all. But you do need to be ready for a David Lynch movie. And I wasn't. So at that time, I just kind of checked out i was like i have no idea what's going on this is a lot is happening um but i don't get any of it and i it's not that i disliked it it just went over my head um and obviously since then i've rewatched it and it's great david bowie shows up as an fbi agent who mysteriously disappeared and at one point he's on security camera footage but not in that's alone worth the price of admission yeah that little thing right there was a problem and then comes back on the show as a tree. That there was a problem that um Kyle McLaughlin didn't want to repeat Dale Cooper in the movie. And that was a big problem because all that stuff at the beginning with uh Kiefer Sutherland and Chris uh, and Chris Isaac, that was originally written to be okay. Cooper. And they kinda they kinda had a retrofitted around him. But um it's great. And now that the Criterion disc is out you can watch the film and enjoy the hell out of it because it's it's a ride. Um, there's that scene where uh, Laura and her father are stuck in traffic behind that log truck, yeah. and the and the one armed man is getting and all you hear is revving engines and people shouting and you can't tell what they're saying and everyone's getting upset and Laura's having a um that you can enjoy the film for what it is, which is incredible, and then watch the hour of outtakes, which I haven't yet done, and seen what it could have been if he was going to be slavishly obedient to the TV fan base. That hour is also on the disc that came with the series, though, right? I think so. Okay. Because I haven't bought the Criterion one thinking, well, I already have it with the series. Do I need to buy and you could just the Criterion? I could. I could. Do you feel like the movie suffers at all from the recasting of Donna? A bit. Because the original Donna, Lara Flynn, Lara, I'm still choking everyone. Lara, Lara Flynn, Boyle, Flynn Boyle, she was great in that part, and that's that's no disrespect to uh, Moira mm. Kelly. Right. It it is weird because everyone else came back, right. so it just it, right. it you know calls even, attention to itself. Even Jacques Renault came back, <laughs> and he's got a much bigger part in the movie. <clears throat> I am the great went. It's a trip. It's uh, it's a good one. 
Uh, my next pick is Dead Presidents from the Hughes Brothers. Um, they, too, made kind of an indie that blew up called Menace to Society. Yeah. And then we're given some Disney touchstone money. <laughs> There was a lot of that Dead floating presidents. around. And then Disney was probably like, wait, what did we do? Um, because Dead Presidents is is so many movies in one. It's a coming-of-age movie. It's a Vietnam War movie. It's an action movie. It's a heist movie. It's a black exploitation movie. The film was finished, and Disney suddenly said, wait, they're black? <laughs> it's, um, I remember at the time, the marketing was very striking because you had their faces painted in that way that they, yeah, you know, I, that's the last 20 minutes of the movie. It's another they, poster I remember. When they do the heist, that's you think it's a movie about people running around in that makeup and it's so not it takes a long time to get to that but uh i love how ambitious it is and how it changes movies every 20 minutes the cast alone is bananas i love movies that do that um every single person you see even like the soldier in vietnam who's in two scenes and has his guts blown out is michael imperioli um Keith David back with his shaved head in a great role. Chris Tucker, Freddie Rodriguez, Nabouche Wright, uh, Clifton Powell, Terrence Howard, of course, Lorenz Tate. Everybody you see so is it's somebody. One of those movies Isaiah where Washington. When you watch it now, it's like, boy, the casting director on this. I mean, they knew who everybody w- was going to blow up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's super entertaining. Another movie that desperately needs a Blu-ray or even an anamorphic DVD because... Why aren't some of these available? And are they going to be? I mean, like this is a this is a mighty tangent, but someone suggested that right before Disney Plus premiered, Disney released a boatload of animated classics on 4K, like on two concurrent Tuesdays. It was like, here you go, and that the uh, the person on the Twitter machine was suggesting that. They're doing this because this is the last possible moment where this makes any kind of economic Yikes. sense. And if you have any interest in seeing these in 4K, better grab them up because a lot of Disney Plus content is in 4K. Right. Clearly, that's where we're going right. with every streaming right. service. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I go back to Paper House. I don't own that on physical media. Sorry, Heath. Um I can watch it whenever I want. I own it until it disappears right. from my iTunes, right. which has happened. I'm of a generation that wants to hold a disc in my hand. Me too. And again, back to the original point, a lot of the movies we're, we're talking about are not tiny independent niche movies. They were... Regular big yeah, studio right, releases, right, right. and they deserve to be seen in better shape than they're currently seen. Yeah, except for Twin Peaks because Criterion does. <laughs> Kino had been putting out a bunch of uh, Touchstone or Hollywood, Hollywood Pictures stuff. Yeah, but they put out like My Boyfriend's Back and My Father the Hero, and not Dead Presidents. And I really want a Blu-ray of Dead Presidents. So if someone's listening. Please put this movie out on Blu-ray. There was a time whenever there was a new format, you'd get this Disney touchstone dump, literally. Right. Where, oh, Laserdisc, here you go, DVD. And the film I'm most thinking of is the touchstone film with Bette Midler and Woody Allen. 
Scenes from a Mall, that which is on Blu-ray from Kino. Scenes from a Mall was always part of that. <laughs> right. Here you go. Right. Here's the uh, Blu-ray. Okay. <laughs> Although in this case, they licensed it to Kino Lord. On a double feature with Big Business. So you get two bet Middlers for the price of one. I have a feeling. I'm this, sorry, three bed Middlers. <laughs> I have a feeling this is on ebert.com. Because I think it that contains every review he ever wrote. I believe right? so. Yeah, Ebert's review <laughs> of Big Business is one of the funniest things I've ever read. I still remember my father drove a newspaper truck, so on Thursday he would bring home the Friday papers. This enabled you to read Ebert's reviews <clears throat> a day early because he worked for the Sun Times and to plan out your movie going twenty four hours in advance. I still remember reading Ebert's review of Big Business, and it's about two sets of twins, Lily Tomlin and Bette Midler, and how a lot of the film was concerned with them almost meeting each other. <laughs> and Ebert famously said, what is the thinking here? That the audience is sitting there saying, they almost met. Then something funny could have happened. <laughs> right? Man, was he astute. I miss Roger so much. Uh, what is your fifth and final choice? My fifth and final choice, and another testament to my son's unerring taste when he was young. The stuff that he would watch over and over, what what the hell was going on, and why did I let him watch it? Yeah. Uh, the film is Pleasantville. Oh, sure. The Gary Ross film. Yeah. And some people might dismiss it as being a little bit milk toasty, a little mm. bit middle of the road, oh, a little I bit disagree. too sitcom-y. Good. Yeah. Because it's really great. Yeah. Even beyond the black and white color gimmick, because it's saying a lot of things. Yes. And as the film goes on, you think you know what is the actual thing, and he keeps changing up what that <laughs> right, is. Right, what right. is this? Um, that two characters, and it's actually Reese Witherspoon and um, Spider-Man. Toby McGuire. Uh, they go back to the 50s. And it's through their television. Inside of a sitcom, right. So the, it's, everything's black and white. Yeah. And they're in this black and white world that supposedly uh, Spider-Man loves because he watches Nick at Night a lot. And we find out maybe what the 50s were really like. And for the longest time in class, I would show examples of that town meeting. Oh, yeah. When everyone gets together to discuss what's going wrong. As an example of canted angles, because every angle in the town meeting looks like something out of Triumph of the Will. <laughs> it's like, that's funny. This film has never... Oh, that's so great with uh, with uh, J.T. Walsh. Yeah, who's always great. And it's a film that has a lot to say about a lot of things. It doesn't get shown anymore on cable. I don't remember when the last physical media release was. There is a Blu-ray of it. But there is a scene... As people change, they they become in color. Right. That's something that happens in the film. Right. And we think we know what affects this change, but Gary Ross keeps changing it up, and it's not maybe it's not so simple. And there's a very famous scene with Joan Allen in a bathtub, and it involves a tree outside the house. Right. And it's one of the funniest visual <laughs> jokes in the film. My son is watching this. He watched it on DVD dozens of times. He's eight. <laughs> I'm looking at my list. He's, what was I thinking? Mm -hmm. Now, it's not R, I don't think. It's not. 
He's eight. <laughs> he didn't know what was going on. I don't want to spoil the film, right? But you know the scene I'm talking about. Of course. About. What did he think was happening? Uh, who knows? I think that lady in the bathtub threw a match out the window <laughs> because that tree not only turns to color, but it's on fire. Yeah. I I don't think this makes me a bad dad. It doesn't. But when I look at the films that he obsessively watched, and the two that I remember best are Pleasantville <clears throat> and Bowfinger, the kid had great taste. <laughs> what year was Bowfinger? Made? 99. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Where is the groundswell of support for Bowfinger? It's yeah. one of the greatest comedies. I started my class this year showing it, and it played better than I think anything else I've started class with. Could part of that be because they know Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin? Maybe. But, I mean, they know John Travolta, and they didn't give a shit about Get Shorty. So, And we've talked about this, but it's worth repeating. Like uh, My Name is Dolomite yeah. and Ed Wood. Yeah. Bullfinger has this trope that Patrick and I love, that when people get together for a creative enterprise, it forges this friendship. Yeah. It's different than any right. other enterprise. Right. Um, and at the end of Bullfinger, when the crew, I don't want to spoil the joke, <laughs> where the crew's been recruited from, but when they're discussing Cahier du Cinema mm-hmm. and what Orson Welles meant by that shot, it's just... It's a great joke. It's beautiful. And I'm I'm glad to hear that you're a fan of Pleasantville, too. Very much so. Okay. I remember going to see it uh, opening weekend in 98 on the same day that I saw Ants and One True Thing. I made a triple feature out of it one Saturday afternoon, and Pleasantville wow. knocked me out. I'm a big fan of it. I'm glad, because sometimes I think a certain type of sentiment tricks me. Well, I think... It's very easy to see it as obvious because of the whole black and white color thing. But I don't think that that's all the movie is. But it's not. Right. I mean, it's it's much more... Yeah. It's a good one. Um, my last pick is my favorite movie on this list. One of my favorite movies of the 90s period. And that is Zero Effect. Uh, starring one of my very favorite actors, Mr. Bill Pullman, in what I think is his greatest role and his greatest performance as private detective Daryl Zero. And the first time I saw Zero Effect was in your townhouse Yeah, one day Yeah, when we were watching some movies. Because for my birthday every year I do... I had read about it, yeah. but I had never seen it, and holy shit. <laughs> it's such a good movie. And no other Bill Pullman performance prepares you for that one. No. Because that's really different yeah. than what he's usually hired to right, do. Right, He was on a show called The Sinner. A Jessica Biel show on USA, um, and it had two seasons. I didn't make it through all all of the second season, but the first season, he does some of the best acting ever of his career, and it, it is very much informed by I think Daryl Zero. But yeah, Zero Effect. He's a private detective. Um, ben Stiller is sort of like his his Watson, his handler, um, and Kim Dickens plays sort of the love interest. I don't want to say too much about the plot. Ryan O'Neill is in it. It's, it's basically he's looking for a missing set of keys. It's a film that when it begins, you think you've seen it. And you wonder how anyone could do a variation right. on a theme right. that would. And then it completely floors you yeah. in what is that 
thing that everyone says on the Twitter machine. Oh, this has been done before. And the filmmaker behind Zero Effect says, hold my beer. <laughs> uh, and it was Jake Kasdan's first movie. And he's never made a movie, I don't think, as good. He made a lot of comedies. Well, he made Walk Hard, which we're fans of. Oh, my God. Um, he made Bad Teacher. He made the awful sex tape. And now he makes those Jumanji movies and he's set for life, basically. But Daryl Zero, Zero Effect rather, is such a, a quirky movie about a completely different type of detective character than you've ever seen. The mystery is completely different. And it reminds me a lot of like something like The Long Goodbye, where it's about a character not just solving a mystery, but at the same time trying to figure out how to like navigate the world. Yeah, very much. Like, That's a really good I, comparison. Where do I fit in in the world, basically, because he's such a recluse. Um, for some reason, in the last mm. couple weeks, a line from Walk Hard keeps going through my head, and I don't know why. Okay. Is it because I just saw Craig Robinson in something? My name is Dolomite. I bet that's what it was. Okay. I'm watching My Name is Dolomite, <laughs> and I kept thinking, I need music here so that my patrons can dance erotically. <laughs> <laughs> I could not get that line After out of we my did head. our underrated 2000s episode, Walk Hard was, I think, the first movie that I watched because... It made me want to watch it, rewatch it so bad. Any any objection you would have is a quibble because talk about if you don't like this joke, wait ten seconds. Oh yeah, good. And and the songs are great, and everybody who shows up is somebody you're happy to see. I mean, it's. I'm not proud of this, but uh, the song that he's working on in the studio, where he's in his Brian Wilson phase, and uh, what is it, Chris Parnell? This isn't even a song; it's like some sort of concerto. It's like twelve songs, and then and then the other guy says it's like twelve songs playing at the same time, and none of them are very good. Um, I often listen to that in my car. It's a song called "Black Sheep," and I know the lyrics. <laughs> It's the it's the um, it's the psychedelic one with the uh, I want more didgeridoos. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I want <laughs> I want an army of didgeridoos. Well, now we're talking about Walk Hard again. Um, Zero Effect, another movie without a Blu-ray, but was one of the first DVDs I ever bought. As so, soon as I got my player, I bought three DVDs that first weekend: Dark City, which could have been on this list. Yeah, Reality Bites for some reason, and Zero Effect. Reality bites. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to get into a tangent, but there is something there. There is something there. Um, I'm not a fan of it for a number of reasons. No, it's one of the weird very things problematic. Is to appeal to the audience they were shooting for, the young people in the film all throw about references that are not of their generation. Right, right, right. So the film wants me to go see it. Right. And I'm, so it wants me to go see it because I desperately want to be 20 again and want to be involved in all this Michigash. Um, I, I like Ethan Hawke as an actor, but he's asked to play a character that's very problematic. Janine Garofalo does what she can. Did Ben Stiller direct it? Yes, he sure did. And, and I got in a big argument after I saw the movie with the aforementioned Pam. Uh, I thought you were going to say you got into an argument with Ben Stiller. <laughs> no, because I felt like the movie at the last minute sells out the Ben Stiller character who's been nothing but kind. 
Oh no, in I order agree with to you prop 100%. up Ethan Hawke, and we're just supposed to be like, oh, that corporate douche, but when the movie has not earned that at all. Not that, not that Pam was unsophisticated, but she was falling prey to the sweeping sentimentality of the fact that the film is obviously positing Ethan Hawke as Mr. Wright and Ben Stiller. But he's as, been awful the entire movie. Oh no, just <laughs> nothing but a, awful. A self-possessed, pretentious prick. Yes. But, and I think there's a movie where she goes for that guy and even ends up with that guy, but we're not supposed to be happy about it. I think that's a movie. Right. But this movie wants us to feel romantic about, oh, they're meant for each other and they're not. I uh, love that we're on this tangent. I, I think <laughs> I think my final comment about Reality Bites, because God knows I've seen it a number of times yeah. uh, for something I don't really like, is that... It would have been a better movie if it was about Janine Garofalo and Steve Zahn. Oh, yeah. With the Winona Ryder plot as the subplot. Yeah. Although I really like the fact that her father gave her a gas card as a graduation right. present so she could buy gas. And she's basically living on the gas card for the... Right. The, I think the film takes place over about a year. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and one more thing, because the film is fascinatingly bad. We see this show that she's making. Right. And it's... Oh, the, and this is how he sells her out, because he turns it into something it's, watchable. It's, it's navel-gazing nonsense. Right. It's her documentary. And then he turns it into something... He turns it into the real world. Right. That's a little faster and a right. little bit more arch. Right. And both of these things are awful. Yes. Just different ways. Well, one so, can be put on television. What the film posits as ruining no, no, no there's nothing there to ruin <laughs> um so that's that's about you know it's like what i said about grace of my heart she starts to sing the song that in the reality of the movie becomes a big hit and it's a big hit it's a great song so for that plot point in reality bites to work yeah what she's making has to be really good and yeah. say something yeah. and what he turns it into has to be even worse right just really right. Right. frighteningly insulting and awful than what they show. Right. Right. Uh, but we've given you a list of 10, 12, 14 or so good yeah, movies to I, watch. I, I fudged a little bit. Seek some of these out if you haven't already, and we're going to do this again probably pretty soon because, again, I have a very long list of and movies that I wanted to include. As do I, and and the the other list is good too. Very quickly, in researching this show... I went back through this infamous list that I put together. And if you're on a 90s tear, if you're on a nostalgic... Which hopefully this podcast inspires. If you're on a nostalgic binge, might I suggest that you avoid the following movies. <laughs> These are movies you saw in a theater. They, I did. <laughs> I did. And it wasn't as bad as uh, recently I was uh, researching a show that we wound up not doing because as it turns out we had already done it. Yeah. And in that case, I was seeing titles that I had no memory of <laughs> and was looking, I was looking them up on IMDb and I was like, oh, I saw that. Holy shit. But here's some films to avoid. Inspector Gadget. Yeah. Okay. Wild Wild West. Well, yeah. Ed TV. It's fine. Celebrity. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ants. I saw that the day I saw Pleasantville. And it came I out don't remember around it. the same time as a Bugs oh, Life. Oh, yeah. It's the Deep Impact Armageddon scenario. The character design in Ants. Oh, it's such an ugly-looking movie. It's, uh, oh, but it's, kids love Woody Allen, I so they flocked to it. 
Uh, George of the Jungle. Okay, not as bad as you're saying. Michael. Pretty bad. <laughs> the more I thought, wait, I was like, wait. Spoiler alert. He's an angel. I saw four movies the day I saw Michael. I saw The Relic. I saw Turbulence with Ray Liotta and Lauren Holly. I saw Michael, and I ended with The Crucible. That was a rough day. Yeah. But, but The Relic is good. Yeah, it's, that's Del Toro, <laughs> isn't it? No, that's Mimic. Oh, the Relic is Tom Sizemore at the Field Museum. Um, if you're in the mood for some cheese, I hesitated to put this on. Or chalk. The, <laughs> I hesitated to put this on my shit, shit, shitty shit list. It's called Heaven's Prisoners, and it's with Alec Baldwin. And Terry oh, yes. Hatcher. Doug is familiar with that movie. Eric, oh, his, his thumb got to work out on the remote, but I now that I think about it, all of his digits got to work out on that <laughs> oh, one. Man. Um, it's it's a, another Southern Gothic. In fact, for just a second, when you started oh, talking you about I was Flesh going and Heaven's Bones, Prisoners. I thought you were going Heaven's Prisoners. Somebody famous directed that. It's Is it Phil Giovanno? It's fascinatingly bad. It is Phil Giovanno. Yeah, it's fascinatingly bad. And then there's another film I had to look up because I remember seeing it at Piper's Alley, and it wasn't listed anywhere. Um, and I guess it had a title change. When I saw it, it was called Bulletproof Heart, with Anthony LaPaglia and Mimi Rogers. Yeah, and apparently, it was originally or eventually shown as Killer. I remember it as Bulletproof Heart. Okay. And it's it's as bad I've as never the day is long. It's a genre exercise. Okay. And finally, he's like a hit hitman, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was dragged to see this by the same Jake who loved Bowfinger and Pleasantville. Because let's face it, he was maybe five. The film is called Kazam. Oh yes. <laughs> and it might be the worst children's film ever made. And here's why I say this. Um, there's a scene where the children are chased by uh by mob figures and the mob figures i believe are in cars or on are on foot and the children of course are on bicycles because et is a movie and the movie is so bad that the editing in this chase scene is incomprehensible and follows no logic of film editing both the bad guys and the good guys change direction mid shot there's no sense of where they are or where they are in relation to each other. It is it is like they indiscriminately cut the footage into pieces, threw them up in the air, and then assembled them blindfolded. Isn't it directed by Starsky? Yes. What was his real name? Paul Michael Glazer? Paul Michael Glazer directed it. <clears throat> it's so bad. Again, channeling the spirit of Roger Ebert, a lot of the plot revolves around retrieving a bootleg tape of a rock band at which point ebert famously noted what child <laughs> has any interest in a bootleg cassette tape of a rock band there's a scene where he makes it rain candy i guess that's fun for kids but let's put shack in a children's film yeah it's just <laughs> it's as bad as the day is long and i know my description is going to make some of you want to see it yeah. because that's a strange phenomenon right. on f this movie <laughs> oh now i want to see it that you sounds, don't that sounds awful let me you, check it out you don't we talked about a bunch of good movies that you should see if you haven't 
Yeah. Uh, some of them harder to track down than others, but all of these, I believe, are readily available. If you contact me, I could be persuaded to send you my copy. Sure. If you if you promise to send it back. Yeah, that makes sense. That's like uh, old school Netflix. Uh, anyway, thank you. Let us know in the comments if you want us to do this again, and we'll we'll do a second installment because there's a lot of movies that we didn't get to talk about. Because we would both love to. Absolutely. The '90s. Man. It was hard to take movies off my list. Um, as always, you know, find us every day at fthismovie.com. Follow us on Twitter. Like, like us on Facebook. Email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com, and you can rate, review, subscribe in iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Jay Bones. This was really fun. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.